in a series on Second Corinthians. And if you're just joining with us, we're in the section from chapters 8 and 9, which have to do with generosity. Uh, chapters 1 to 7, kind of where Paul explaining his legitimacy of his ministry uh, with those who are challenging him and the sections on generosity. And then the last section we'll come back to later in the year, uh, we'll deal with some of the challenges uh, that are happening in the church that Paul specifically deals with. Uh, and we're dealing with generosity. We're spending some time looking into this uh, and reflecting a lot about how we are to respond. But ultimately, it's about how much we see God as a generous God. And I pray that the Spirit would enlarge our understanding, our affections, and our experience of the goodness of God. And as we get into the text today, would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we relate to you out of so many ways. And sadly, because of sin in our world and many of our experiences of relating to you uh, have been out of shame or guilt or out of mere empty behavior. We pray that your spirit would help us to see truly how gracious and good you are as a provider, as a giver of good gifts, as a generous God who is calling us to life abundantly and will provide and has secured for us immeasurable riches that we even begin to have access to now because of your spirit. I pray that we would see more of that, experience more of that. That happens by grace as well. And so we ask the grace of the spirit who is present in your, pe- in your children and present in this space would bring that to life in us so that we would overflow towards one another, so that we would overflow to our city who is in need of Jesus and overflow to the world because your glory is so big, it expands everywhere. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. R.G. Le Torno, I think I'm pronouncing his name correct, was an influential businessman and inventor of earth-moving equipment. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade and started working at various jobs. Carpenter, miner, farmer, he worked as a mechanic for many years. And when he got married, he told his pastor he wanted to do more for God. And the pastor wisely told him God needs businessmen too. Uh, at the time, he was $100,000 in debt due to a job project that had gone horribly Uh, the opposite direction he had hoped. Uh, In the middle of facing financial difficulties with his business, he, in spite of that, began to practice radical generosity with his money, his time, his life. During his career, he was the maker of over 300 inventions. Hundreds of patents are written in his name. He was known for living on 10% of his income and giving away 90% of it for the sake of the kingdom. People asked him about his commitment to generosity, and he said, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I get to keep for myself. Sometimes we think we'll give more when we have more, but his generosity was developed and practiced radically because he began to give out of difficult seasons. And so when he had much, he had this muscle of generosity. His giving started a Christian university. His giving was influential in the explosion of ministry that began in Latin America during the 20th century. So much of his work spread throughout South America and the gospel spreading there can largely be traced to some of his generosity in his lifetime. Followers of Jesus 
I believe, should be the most generous people in the world because of who we have. We have a father who is the giver of all good gifts to us. We have a Lord and Savior who's given himself completely to us. We have this gift of the Holy Spirit and God's presence in us, reminding us of the generous things we received and reminding us of the generous, infinite riches we will to inherit in the kingdom. Scripture, as we read it, overflows with reminders of how much we've been given in Christ. We see the generosity of the early church. Should we look at Christian history, we see incredible examples of Christians who lived radically with their lives and their resources. You can look throughout history and you can see, even at the beginning of our country, many of the universities, almost all the original Ivy Leagues, many of our hospitals, all the city missions we have in all of our cities, countless humanitarian projects that continue on today, they're overwhelmingly come from Christian generosity. And yet money and generosity will always be difficult for Christians. That's probably why of the 39 parables that Jesus gave that we have recorded for us in the Gospels, 13 of them have to do with money. Jesus spent more time teaching about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Because he knew that money was and will always be a difficult place of discipleship for his people. And sadly, last week I mentioned the statistic that 37% of Jesus followers never give anything. And to, to kind of, even though that's discouraging, it's actually, you can, I read this stat, I was reading all bunch of stats about generosity this past week, and this one kind of shocked me and discouraged me even more. Uh, the average percentage of giving from followers of Jesus today in America is less than what we gave during the Great Depression. Christians were more willing to give when vinegar pie was common than they are now when avocado toast is $18 and very common in our plates. But here's the thing about facts and statistics. They don't motivate giving. They're important to realize the circumstances, but giving fundamentally is about where we fix our hearts, where we fix our minds. And that's why Paul, as he's motivating, giving a framework for generosity, what it means to follow Jesus in our resources. He, he doesn't just guilt them. He doesn't just command them even. He gets at their heart. And actually, that's where we most struggle. I think we commonly use guilt and shame and fear because in part, they kind of work, at least for a short time, but they only change behavior only for a very short time. They don't actually change the person. And we tend to also focus on the task of the actual giving. But fundamentally, this is even more than just about giving. This is about your whole life, your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, all of that given to the Lord. That's why in the Old Testament, it's not just about behavior. They were rebuked for worshiping God with their lips, but having hearts far from God. The, er the early church, they, they had this struggle as they were leaving Phariseeism and all that and they had this practice of being very faithful with their actions and yet having their hearts far from God. And that's why when Paul is helping us understand generosity and what it means to follow the Lord with our resources, he aims for the heart. And that's what I hope for, that we would look at the heart motivations today. And Paul helps us look at fundamental motivations when it comes to generosity. 
we're going to look at three of them. There's actually many more in this passage, but I've been going over time in my sermons the last few weeks, so I'm trying to restrain myself a little bit to three points today. First motivation, we're motivated fundamentally by love. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He says this is not a command. He's not trying to goad them with harsh words, just trying to call them to duty. He's not trying to get them to give out of mere obligation. Because real generosity doesn't flow from behavior alone. It flows from a heart that is experienced and received generous love so that you can actually also then give out of an overflow of love. Giving is a tangible evidence of love because foundational to giving is an experience of love so that you can extend love. Think about someone who says they love you but refuses to respond in action. Like you ask them to to give you a help you out because you need a ride to the airport, but their response is, I'm too busy, and they're just too busy scrolling on their phone. That's not loving. You show it in your actions. That's expressed in marriage, that's expressed in parenting, that's expressed in our lives. We express love by our actions. What matters fundamentally here is not ultimately about their money. It's about love. The highest calling we see throughout scripture of Christians is love. We have faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, as Paul says earlier to the Corinthians, is love. Giving is not the most important action, but it can express one of the fundamental, most important actions, which is love. That's why John, the apostle, says in his little letter, 1 John chapter 3, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, in talk, but in deed and in truth. If you care about something, you will act. You will respond. That's how you show love. Love is fundamental. It's the foundational motivation for generosity. And here's the key implication. Here's some questions I was asking my own heart this week and I want us to consider and reflect on is you will always give to what you love. That's just natural to who we are. You will respond with your energy, your time, your resources. You will give to what you love. And there are various loves that we have in our lives. So the question that we ask ourselves is how does our love for the Lord show up in our giving of ourselves? our heart, soul, mind, strength. And if it's not there at all, the solution isn't just to hear me and say, well, now I need to start giving. No, actually, the foundational thing is love. And if there's a heart that's resistant to responding in loving action of giving, then I think the fundamental issue is a heart problem. And the question to evaluate in your own heart is why you don't experience, why you don't believe that you have love from God. It's not just to to mimic the behavior and now start giving because fundamentally God doesn't just want that. He doesn't need our money. What he wants is you. And so if there's a hard heart towards responding with ourselves to the Lord, for those of us who follow Jesus, the issue is actually, why don't you believe that God loves you? What what is going on there and wrestling with that and allowing the Spirit to help you get into that? 
evaluating why is it that you don't experience that? Because those who experience love from God will naturally overflow with that in their lives. I pray that you will hear that. I'm not going through this series. We're not going through 2 Corinthians trying to motivate by guilt, not just trying to change behavior. Fundamentally, it's the heart. But again, the giving or lack thereof actually, as we said last week, can be a check engine light because it's an indicator of something else going on. And I believe one of the things that inhibits us from a generous spirit in our lives is because we stopped believing or somehow have a barrier to seeing the generosity of our Lord. Second motivation, and we'll spend most of our time here, is the good news of Christ. Foundational motivation to generosity is believing the gospel. Look at verse 9, which I believe is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture about generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's this beautiful, profound picture of the gospel connected to this principle of generosity. A foundational motivation is a belief and experience of transformation that comes from the good news of Christ. I want to look at this passage, breaking down these sections. We'll spend most of our time here. The first thing he says I want to look at is, though he was rich. I think we tend to miss the fact that Jesus was infinitely rich. Because we tend to look at his earthly ministry, and we'll look at this in a second, but his earthly ministry didn't display his riches. But Jesus is infinitely rich. Let's think about the wealth of Jesus for a second. Let's reflect on this. He's the eternal God. He has existed forever in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect eternal harmony. There's perfect love experienced in the Trinity. There's perfect joy. There's infinite peace. Jesus never lacked anything for all of his time. He has no need. He has never experienced loneliness. And so when God created the world, it wasn't because he needed love from his creation. It was an overflow of his perfect love that he has always experienced between Father, Son, and Spirit. We see this expressed in Colossians chapter 1, for by him, the speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus rules over everything. He is infinitely rich. Everything that ever breathes or moves or exists in creation, it all owes its existence to him. Everything in creation will one day give an account to Jesus. Jesus is rich. Maybe that feels a little too theoretical. So let me just give a comparison to wealth for a second. I looked on Friday, and as of Friday, uh, the wealthiest person on earth is still Elon Musk. Even though on Friday he lost $3.5 billion in net worth, he's still the most wealthy person in the world right now. That ups and flows between the top five people, but... His net worth is 300 or sorry, 232 and a half billion dollars as a Friday because he lost that three and a half billion. A billion 
I can't even comprehend that. That's a thousand millions. I don't know if you've ever seen a billion of anything, except for maybe if you look at sand on the seashore, maybe you've seen a billion or something. But here, here's the one thing to comprehend this amount of wealth. If you spent a million dollars every day and your net worth was $232.5 billion, it would take you 637 years to spend it all. If you spent $1 million every day. He runs Tesla, SpaceX, a boring company, and it's not boring, it digs tunnels. For fun, he makes, you know, uh, flamethrowers, and he bought an AI company, and then he was bored last year, and so he bought Twitter and renamed it X. That's how much wealth he has. He's wealthy. I can't even comprehend that kind of wealth. And yet, for all of that wealth, all of that is just change in my kid's piggy bank compared to the infinite riches of Jesus. Jesus is wealthy. Yet, for our sake, he became poor. Without ceasing to be God, he chose to enter poverty for you. This is a, a, a literal and figurative poverty. Think about it figuratively for a second. This is humility and service. The king of the universe, the one who everything owes his existence to, the one to which everything of creation will give account to, this king became a servant. One of the images I really like, uh, I think it, I, I forget who it's actually from, maybe it's C.S. Lewis, but they said, it's like when Jesus became creation, it's like a shoemaker becoming a shoe. It doesn't make any sense. This is a creator who submits to becoming creation. All the source of strength and riches in all the universe became weak. Think about it like this. The higher the position, the more humble the service is. The more notice you take of their, their act. Right? It's like a CEO of a company that has crazy wealth. It's like some like Elon Musk cleaning toilets at the X building. That would be quite shocking, wouldn't it? It'd be like if Joe Biden, the president of our country, came... And even though he says he loves the poor, he actually spent a week living on the streets of Tenderloin. That would be amazingly humble. Jesus, the infinite son of God, became an infant. He had to humble himself to live life dependent in a womb. He experienced what all of us experienced, struggling through a birth canal, having to cry and not be able to fend for yourself and be dependent on his parents for food. That is the writ, the creator of everything became poor for our sake. He was born in the infant. He was born even in a scandalous way. He didn't come to the most powerful person in creation at the time. He was born to a poor teen in a scandalous situation to a marginalized people born in an unimpressive town. He was the, born in the lowest of lows. Philippians 2 tells us that although he maintained his divinity when he became man, he didn't cling to it. He didn't use it to his own advantage. He didn't lord it over other people. He served. This poverty is also very literal in his earthly life. Jesus, he had a family that was so poor they couldn't make the offering for him. And so they had to sacrifice not a lamb that was common. They had to sacrifice two pigeons. 
as an adult during his earthly life, Matthew 8 verse 20 says, foxes and holes uh, have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So at least for a season, Jesus literally took on homelessness. He was poor. But the greatest poverty that Jesus experienced, the greatest depth of his humility was the cross. Philippians tells us to humility to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is an incredibly humbling death, a scandalous death, because think about all the ways that people can die. There, there are lots of ways people die, even in their time. But crucifixion was only reserved for the worst. It was a form of execution by the state. And think about all the ways that they could have done it. They could have done it by beheading, by burning, so many terrible ways. But this was the lowest of lows, crucifixion. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Most of the Romans wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. That's how shameful it was. Often they would crucify people lifted up near public streets to, to bring public shame. So it wasn't just personal. It brought shame to the, the people, the family, as people would mock them, notice them, and spit on them. Consider the riches and consider the poverty. This is the one who gave life to everyone who is now being mocked by his creation. The very people he gave breath to are now using those, those breaths and those words to shame Jesus. The one who literally gives water to the world is now experiencing people using that as spit to spit on the creator. The one who created the world is now crucified on high. The one who was ultimately infinitely rich became poor. And the astonishing thing about this good news is Jesus chose it willingly. No one takes his life. Lots of people become poor. Lots of people were crucified, but Jesus willingly chose it for our sake. In verse 9, it continues. It says, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. We might become rich by his poverty. In Christ, those of us who are children, we have been given every spiritual blessing. Love, unlimited. Peace to never end. Joy that overflows. A freedom that will never be taken from us. Salvation to the end. Hope that is unstoppable. Life abundantly. In Christ, you have immeasurable riches. The problem is we don't see it. We don't believe it. We don't allow the Spirit to bring us to that place. See, the motivation for generosity isn't Paul just saying you need to now give. No, he wants to hold up Christ. Look at Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor for you so that by his poverty you might become rich. Look at him. Because of the gospel, we can be generous. Because generosity isn't motivated by guilt. You can change behavior for a moment if you guilt someone, but you change a person when you see good news. Gratitude is an overflow of what you believe about the gospel. Sadly, that, that's where we, I think we struggle a lot because most of us, you use, we use guilt. I, I, I was evaluating my own parenting and I'm like, man, there's so many times I motivate by guilt, which is probably why it's hard to believe the gospel in my family sometimes. And that's something that for us raising young kids to realize is if we believe good news, how do we lead our children out of good news, not just out of guilt? Because 
we are used to guilt. We receive guilt, most of us, and now we pass it on. And, but evaluating, how do we motivate by good news? That's a struggle for us. We, we're used to guilt and shame. But Paul, as he's encouraging the Corinthians to respond in generosity, he says, look at Christ, you're saved. God motivates us ultimately by grace too. He declares mercy over us. He wants us to see how he loves us. And Paul wants to say, to see our sins forgiven, to see that we're made anew, to see that we've been giving a new family a whole different purpose in life. Grace motivates. Grace is what transforms. And that's why I'm praying that the Spirit would open us to see See, the lack of generosity that exists in the church, not just as a church, but the church, is because we don't see how generous Jesus is. And I pray the Spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to believe it. I love this definition of grace. This is a, I think I learned it in VBS as a kid. The grace, uh, it's an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a really simple one. It's an easy one to remember. And it, actually, I love it because... It reminds us of how immeasurable God's riches are, but also it's not free. It has a cost to Christ. He entered poverty on our behalf, bearing our sins, bearing your sins. We have to understand this cost, that by his poverty, we become rich. If we want to be generous people, we need to see Christ. Earlier this year, uh, many of us remember that we grieved and reflected when Tim Keller died in May after his fight with pancreatic cancer. He spent most of his Christian ministry actually on this one concept that's really gripped my heart. I probably learned this concept most from him is he spent a lot of his time teaching about heart motivations stemming from the gospel. I learned all of it from him as I thought about this some more because of his book, Counterfeit Gods, as we began preaching in the early 90s about this concept, but he, he anchors motivation for Christians in the gospel. That the gospel, good news, ultimately has to motivate service, obedience, even generosity. And in that book, Counter for Gods, in his series of sermons on idolatry, he talks about unpacking idolatry for modern people because we don't see physical idols anymore. But we have idols. They exist in various forms like money, sex, or power. Because what you place your hope in for satisfaction, your identity, security, peace, joy, those are the things that actually you're looking to as God. And he says, as he's trying to unpack idolatry, the only way that you help someone overcome the thing that they're worshiping, the idol that exists in their life, is not by gifting them, not by shaming them. Actually, you have to show them something better. That's the only thing that grips their heart. And that's what the gospel is. It shows us, here's the best. Here is Christ. And re then you begin to realize money ultimately never holds its promises. It never keeps its promises to the end. It lies to us. And the reason that lie works is because we experience little glimpses of the truth there, but it ultimately can never keep it all the way to the end. It can't keep it forever. Money can't die for your sins. Money can't ultimately give you the joy you hope it will give you. Never give you the identity, the power, the control that you want from it and the freedom you want. If you serve an idol, whether it's money or something else, it always enslaves you. It always takes your life. 
But Jesus, when you see him for who he is, he gives you life by giving you his. Only Jesus gives you that that we want in everything else we seek. And so fundamentally, we need to begin to see this gospel as our motivation. It's a central motivation to all of our Christian life. And so whether it's finances, whether it's missions, whether it's being involved in our city, I mean, our vision, we want to make gospel transformed disciples of all people in our city, in the world. How do we get to the end of the earth? It's not just by mere command, although we do have great commandments and we have the great commission. Fundamentally, it comes from seeing who Jesus is. And so the question, if we reevaluate our own hearts, the question as we evaluate our corporate heart as a church, in our, in our generosity specifically, isn't just about the amounts. It's fundamentally about how we see Jesus. Last, we looked at the motivation of love, the gospel, and these are all somewhat related. This last unique one, I think, comes from belief that God is a provider. He's the provider that will never cease to provide. Look at the end of this section, verses 13 to 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He wants to make clear to them, I'm not trying to make you poor for the enrichment of other people. There's a mutual responsibility with those who have much to help with those who little and that ebbs and flows in the, in the seasons of life. He's not talking about a government program here. He's talking about the church, the community of redeemed people who recognize when there's needs in the body of Christ that we supply in mission. In this case, this is one church helping another church. And actually, we do this as a church. We've given to other church plants in our city that primarily uh, serve the homeless population. You can imagine the homeless don't financially give a ton to the church. And so this church doesn't have the same means as we do. And so we give. We give to other churches as they have need. We give to church plants through our missions, partnerships. This is, this is something I'm hoping we respond more of in as a church. One of the things that gives me vision for the next season of our church as we surpassed 50, 40 years now is to remember we are here because of generosity. The generous people who believed in the gospel, who left CIBC Chinatown, Chinese Independent Baptist Church, and with their generosity of mission, heart, money, time, discipleship, planted our church. We are the recipients of generosity. And as we have much, we have that same call to be generous. I believe one of the things that would be God-honoring for Sunset Church is to be part of the expansion of God's kingdom in the Bay Area as we see God's glory needing to be present in more and more places in our city and around us. I'm hoping we do more of that as we give of ourselves for the kingdom of God. You see this happen within the church, in a local church. We looked at this earlier in Acts chapter 2 as we went to the series on the church. The church members begin to take care of each other. And we do this a couple ways in our church. Sometimes it happens within community groups. I love hearing about how a community group will help someone as they're in, in the middle of job loss and the community group will come alongside that person and help them in moments of transition. It plays out for us as a church. That's why we start funds like our disaster relief fund to help people who are in times of need or help regions of the country as they experience disaster with helping in those who are in need. 
we respond like that. And the grounding of all this is a belief that God provides. As followers of Jesus, we recognize there may be times of need, but in the body of Christ, God provides in and through his church. And we who have a lot in a season are responsible for stewing that for those who have little. He grounds it in the experience of the wilderness. That's why he quotes at the end here, Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. They're experiencing the wilderness out of the deliverance from slavery before they enter the promised land where it's hard to flourish. But in that time, God, every single day, gives them exactly what they need. He provides. He never lets them lack. And that's the thing we need to begin to believe, that God provides, that in seasons of need, God provides. In seasons of abundance, one of the means by which God provides to those who have needs is through us. Not out of guilt, not out of even just mere obedience, we believe that God provides. And as we look at even just our practical history as a church, throughout the seasons of our church, God always provides. And so it breaks my heart when there's temptations to to act or believe and function out of scarcity or fear, because as I look at our church, God always provides. And when we have need, we adjust, and God then provides. God has always provided, and we see that ultimately in Christ, but even we see that in our practical history. And so as we look into the future of our church, as we plan as a church, as we spend for the sake of the kingdom, I pray that we would see and give and function out of this belief that God provides, just like he did in the wilderness even more so to us because we have Christ and the Holy Spirit. God provides. And so we give out of this belief that God is a gracious, persevering provider. One of the things I did this past week just kind of prepare for this message was looking at various stories of generosity. That's why I discovered that that Christian, R.G. Letourneau. I also looked at just general pictures of generosity. So one, a bunch of stories I came across uh, were lotto winners, Sadly, a lot of lotto winners become bankrupt because they don't have good skills at spending money when they have little, so that doesn't translate when you have a lot. That's the same principle. If you don't have generosity when you have a little, you're not going to be generous when you have a lot. But one story, a bunch of stories I found that was kind of interesting were lotto winners who lived generously. And there's a number of stories of people who win the lotto and spend their life giving it away. One person uh, who won $25 million uh, which is insane compared to some of the lotto winners, but still a ridiculous amount of money. He, he spent his years slowly giving it away in random different things. Like sometimes he would hear of a restaurant owner who uh, had a daughter who had struggling with cancer and their health insurance wasn't covering all the things. So he would go to the restaurant and give a tip of $10,000. He just randomly find places towards generosity. And I was like, this is, this is encouraging from my heart to see these people in their generosity. And I don't know what their spiritual belief or not. I tried to dig in a little bit. But think of us in Christ, who believe, who know in Christ, though he was rich, who have infinite riches, he became poor for our sake so that by his poverty, we might become rich. We see his provision again and again and again. We have riches that will never fade, that are never affected by inflation, an eternal inheritance that will never be taken from us because it's guarded in Christ. How much more so then can we be generous as God's people? Would you take a moment to allow the Spirit to speak into you? 
in response before we take communion. Maybe just put up, uh, maybe it's helpful for you. Uh, surely if you would put up where whoever's running the PCO right now, the, the prayer of generosity that we've been using, that Kevin said for us earlier, maybe that is a guide for us as we consider the Spirit and how He's speaking to each one of us. Would you take a moment to worship and receive Father, we confess that at times we are like the Old Testament people who worship with lips and ritual, but our hearts are far from you. And we know that because we see it in our stinginess of ourselves. Father, I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to believe by faith that you, though rich, became poor for our sake. And that by your poverty, your cross, we become infinitely rich. Father, I pray for the corporate heart of our church. That we would be generous as a people. So as people think about Christians in this city, they would see that we believe in a generous God who always provides. And that will be reflected in the giving of our whole self as we give our lives as a living sacrifice of worship to you. We're thankful that we get to receive in a moment from your table. And I pray this receiving would generate worship to you. Christ's name, amen.